It's March 2015, Episode 3, Free Software in the Music Industry. Welcome to Hacking Culture, featuring in-depth interviews with free software advocates. Hacking Culture is brought to you by Lullabot, and I'm your host, Matthew Tift. lot of people that believe the music industry is in trouble. Nobody's really sure how things are going to work out, but we all want our music. One attempt to help working musicians is called Cash Music, and I'm joined today by Jesse Von Doon, the co-executive director of Cash Music. How are you doing today, Jesse? I'm all right. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, I'm glad you can make it. I hear you're you're buried in snow. The worst I have is like 60 degree weather with a little bit of clouds. So, you know, I feel feel kind of guilty. Oh, I love the snow. I was actually out on my fat bike today enjoying the powder. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i an East Coast boy originally, and uh, I was a messenger for eight years. And uh, it's a little crazy living on the West Coast and uh, not seeing snow ever. It's weird. We're, we're doing snow talk today, right? That's what the, the, the topic is? Well, sadly, no. Today, we're here to talk about cash music. And from what I can tell, it's a number of different things, including an acronym that means Coalition of Artists and Stakeholders. Mm -hmm. It's a nonprofit organization that helps artists. It's free software for musicians. It's also a website at cashmusic.org. How would you describe Cash Music? So, you know, on the whole, the organization itself, we are a nonprofit organization. We have a mission of finding, of helping artists find sustainability for themselves and their careers. That's the really complicated thing to do for uh, every artist I've ever seen. All the similarities that are there between how you manage your connection to your audience, essentially. Um, for all those similarities, there's just as many differences. And, and that's something we run into all the time. So... What we've done is we started building, like you said, free and, and open software. And literally every line of code that we have ever written has been put under an open source license and, uh, and will continue to do so. We sort of pledged both free in the sort of the open source sense and also free in that we don't charge for it, nor will we ever. This essentially we've built a platform for artists to sort of be able to take advantage of all the services that are out there and tie them together a little bit more, you know, more intelligently, make it work with their websites, not not necessarily against. So it's not something that you'd get instead of WordPress or instead of Tumblr or, or whatever other, you know, thing you use. Instead, we've kind of built something that if you download it and install yourself, if you use our central hosted thing and use embeds, either way, it can work with the thing that you have already. And so you would be able to do uh, an email for download campaign, for example, that ties in your MailChimp email and uh, ties in your S3 account or your Google Drive and uses that to serve files. Or if you're buying stuff, uh, doing a paid campaign, it's a, uh, uses your PayPal account. No one gets in the middle of it. There's no cut taken out. And you deliver from your own file hosting type of platform again. So that's that's really the idea is to capture workflow more than content and um, allow artists to customize and build those workflows off with their own accounts. It seems to me that cash music is about helping people who happen to be musicians. You're helping them say what they want to say and make music how they want to make it. 
and that free software is your vehicle. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the idea here is, I, I think where I got into it is I, I hate the idea that the internet or, or building for the internet should only be for highly technical people, um, or even the idea that because you're a musician, you're not technical. You're very technical. Even if you're, you know, you've learned recording, you've learned your instrument, you've learned your way around a lot of different uh, things. And, and I think the idea that you're going to be sort of forced into sort of a less than position just because you can't code or can't spend all your time coding is is really not what the internet that I give about is all about. I think it has to be more egalitarian and also easier for people to build uh, their own their own solutions. So. So yeah, it, it is about people, and and uh, when it comes to serving that mission of ours, you know, we've been building free software for a while. The last year has essentially been usability, and every release we've put out, every major milestone has been about making it easier to use rather than more and more features. We're finally getting back to the point where we're starting to build features again, and uh, we're actually going to be doing a lot more this year around outreach. Uh, education, essentially generating content that lets people see what's working. So it's going to be case studies, not just of our stuff, but of what's working for artists in general, and start talking about what that landscape looks like more actively so that we can say, you need to figure out your world. And while you're here, you can take the very next step and just start using something that is open, that is easy, that is there for you. So that's the, that's the goal, at least. So another way to describe cash music is that you are an advocacy group for musicians, and that you are also promoting free software to musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a very important point. Uh, so I've been building, I've been building websites and web junk for musicians for longer, longer than it seems possible. I guess 1994, 1995 is about when I started stuff, and obviously back then it was uh, a whole heck of a lot easier, or maybe easier but uh, simpler. You know, and over all that time, uh, you know, even as recently as, as, you know, 10 years ago, people weren't really aware of the idea of free software. They weren't really idea, uh, aware of the ideas behind uh, open license content, Creative Commons type stuff, uh, what open source means. Those were, those were completely new ideas in the music industry. And I, I happened to be just kind of an oddball that was stuck in between, in between uh, music industry and uh, open source. So it just became a really natural fit after a while. And I'd even go so far as to say I'm more music industry than I ever was open source, but this is literally a perfect solution to uh, a very complicated problem. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how it all came to be, really. And that's definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because you said, I care about musicians, mm-hmm. I want to help musicians, I can use open source tools to help musicians. Yeah, it, it's it's funny. It all grew out of uh, so there's a, a woman named Kristen Hirsch. She was in a band called uh, Throne Muses, and uh, she was talking to Danita Sparks from a she was in a band uh, actually is in a band uh, called L7, and they were just talking about how they have each had very big success. They've played major festivals. They can still both sell out, you know, various venues, you know. Kristen can go to, uh, you know, whatever, the Royal Albert Hall and sell it out without a problem. And, uh, you know, same goes for Danita and L7. They can, they're doing a reunion tour that's, you know, looks like it's going to be fantastic. And the two of them were talking, this is about, wow, about eight years ago now, and uh, saying that they wanted to, I mean, they were lifelong musicians. They would, they could not do anything else. They couldn't imagine doing anything else. But they also didn't really feel the need or, or desire to be rock stars in that traditional sense of, you know, pampered, whatever. And, uh, 
record labels are great, and I'm going to go right now on record as I love record labels, but they are also not for everyone. So these guys decided they wanted to do subscription services. Kristen still uses hers to this day as a sort of prime source of income, and the people who support her there are really truly changing her career. And we just built this weird subscription service that each of them used separately, but with the same tools. And, uh, you know, we were talking about what do we do now that we built this thing? Is it, was that it? Was it one off? Was it this thing or, or is it a company? And, uh, the last thing I wanted to do was become some new kind of middleman that says you come do this and I'll take 10% of your money. I, I don't, I don't like that model, um, on the internet necessarily. I think we decided we didn't want to be a startup in 2000 seven or whatever it was so we uh we ended up just sort of like pulling a bunch of stuff together at the time i was working with a label called kill rock stars so i had that code and i had this code from doing the stuff with Kristen and danita and we just sort of all decided the best thing to do was to uh open source the whole thing and put it into the hands of a nonprofit. literally something that cannot be bought i think most people don't necessarily understand what a nonprofit is really the whole point is it's a mission-driven organization that doesn't have ownership it owns itself so i'm responsible to that mission and to the board that's there to you know keep that mission going in the right direction yeah the rest is seven years of sort of slogging history but it's uh it's fun and it's interesting so you were involved from the very start yeah Kristen and Danita uh, had this idea for, we want to do something around subscriptions. We want to be more like NPR than, than KISS. Danita's manager, Bob Fagan, uh, who through a friend of his gets this connection, a Los Angeles friend of his gets this connection to me. And Billy O'Connell, who uh, is managing Kristen, calls me up and we're talking. And uh, finally, you know, we have this thing where we, I think we just like both heard the same sound in the, in the background. And he's like, where are you? And I said, oh, I, I live in Newport, Rhode Island. And he said, I am in the next town over. And we just realized that of all the things, we have this connection through Los Angeles. And we're both on literally an island off the coast of Rhode Island. And, and how random and weird is that? So we met the next day for coffee. We started planning things out. We built a few things and it was going to be, I was going to be, you know, a freelance developer for something. And instead, I guess I became an executive director of an organization. They're kind of different jobs, I guess, but oh well. But you do a lot more than the typical executive director in terms of writing code. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I was the guy that built it all before and we're, we're starting to see more community engagement now and we've grown a little. I mean, we're, We've gone from, you know, whatever it was, just basically just me at one point in time to a massive behemoth of three and a half people. Uh, it's not, not exactly juggernaut speed, but that's how nonprofits go. And, uh, and, and yeah, so uh, it's me uh, doing most of the back-end development stuff. We, I should say it's four people, but a, a few half-time and a few part-time, that sort of thing, plus volunteers. But, uh, yeah, so we have a full-time uh, front-end creative director type. He's but it's kind of those duties and we have uh we have a devops guy who's amazing and uh basically saves my life on a regular basis and uh that's kind of where it stands now and we're kind of we've been expanding and growing and, and hoping to you know right now my duties are it's it's crazy being an executive director of a nonprofit is like leading any kind of organization it's really weird and dumb you spend most of your time asking other or answering other people's questions you spend another most of your time fundraising and and out in the world and another most of your time advocating and and doing evangelism and then you spend this like nighttime most of your time working on code when you can and, and actually building things, which, you know, is something something I love. So it's, it's great.
website says you get funding from Mozilla, MailChimp, Rackspace, MaxCDN, and the Shuttleworth Foundation. How has becoming a Shuttleworth fellow changed your involvement in cash music? I should, I should point out quickly that Rackspace and MaxCDN are both in-kind sponsors. They give us uh, services, not cash. They're awesome, though, and it's been a great relationship. So I kind of I kind of dig both those pieces a whole bunch there. They've been great to us and, and to the open source community in general. But uh, yeah, no, it, it's been uh, it's been crazy. The Shuttleworth Foundation stuff has changed my world. Like, I mean, truly every single thing about it. It's uh, it's a new level of funding so that we've been able to actually expand. We I mean, we never would have been able to hire uh, Chris Lucky, who is our creative director. Um, it was basically Maggie, uh, Maggie Vale, my partner and I, uh, it was the two of us you know, it looked like it was going to be the two of us kind of slogging along for the foreseeable future. But yeah, the Shuttleworth Fellowship kind of brings both funding, but also sort of a support system that is really unparalleled. You know, they 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 don't get the attention that other uh, foundations and, and organizations do, but they, they support their fellows like nobody else when it comes to um, money, time, everything. You know, there's there's it's just really – it's been a, a whole new way of looking at the world, really. Um, most of their fellows come from academia or you know, are, are building, building efforts around education, building efforts around science, doing sort of this landmark world-changing stuff. And, and uh, you know, we come along and pitch the idea of you know, pop music is important too and music is important to culture. And, and you know, it was great because they just called up and they're like, we, we agree. You know, we need to expand. And they have this wonderful viewpoint of what – uh, open world can look like, you know, um, I think one thing that maybe drives me a little bit nuts from time to time about about sort of the open culture and about sort of the open the open tech space specifically is we we focus so much on the tech side, not about the rest of the world, you know, that we've lost that idea of, hey, we need to bring everyone else along for the ride as well. So it's it's wonderful to see a, an organization like them who you know, they recognize and realize that that academia is important and kind of vital to to bring along to keep those ideas open and free and accessible to people so that there can be another generation of people that care about, you know, an open, effective uh, and, and powerful Internet. They realize that, you know, the arts and culture is is more than just entertainment. It's not about gosh, we really want our music. It's also think about the things that that music can do to change the world. So we've always built everything that we've that we've made alongside artists. So we've it's been a very slow but intentionally slow process where we will work with a musician and say, you know, we're not going to tell you how to use our stuff. We're going to ask you what do you need, and then we're going to build it or figure it out or see how we can use what we've got to slightly change it to make new features, whatever. We we did a release with a, a band called Run the Jewels. They are a hip hop duo basically, Killer Mike from Atlanta and LP from New York. Incredibly politically minded, really, really, really smart. Just like it's hard to hear their stuff and not think smart. And this summer, I guess, or fall, when when things were happening in Ferguson, when it was at its worst, those guys played. Uh, they actually played a show in St. Louis the night that the prosecutor announced no charges. And uh, Killer Mike got up on stage and he said profound, wonderful words about just what he faces as uh, a man in this world, a uh, person of color. Uh, a father, uh, you know, every every kind of aspect of his life. And he gave this moving speech that I can't even to search for Killer Mike Ferguson. You'll find it. And realizing the power that he has as an artist to influence the minds of literally thousands of people at a time, 
you, you start to see the power of and the necessity for making sure that everyone does have access to an open and powerful web. And that's that's where artists come in. And that's where the side of culture comes in that's t- so vital to me is I don't want an internet that's only there for programmers. I think it has to be there for artists, for academics, for programmers, for every single person. I want, you know, the, the idea of recipes and, and, and literally every every single possibility of what the internet can be. It's just, uh, it can be and should be so much more than just a venture-backed landscape for new businesses. So just to add a little bit of history, the Shuttleworth Foundation was started by Mark Shuttleworth. And Mark Shuttleworth also is the owner of Canonical, which is a company that provides commercial support for services related to Mm -hmm. the Ubuntu operating system, which is a Linux distribution. And some people, including the New York Times, have described Cache Music as Linux for musicians. So it makes a lot of sense to me that the Shuttleworth Foundation would see the value in what you guys are trying to do for musicians. Totally. No, it, it's it was it's kind of an ideal thing. You know, it really is a and it's a great fit. You know, they 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 get it, they support it, and they are are behind us fully. So it's I kind of love those guys. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. The other thing that's interesting about them. So Mark is uh, from South Africa, and so the foundation itself is a South African foundation. They bring an immensely global perspective to it. You know, there, there's this thing about music and music industry stuff where we get stuck in U.S. and U.K. an awful lot. That's just the bulk of the industry is U.S., U.K., Europe, and then you kind of fizzle and fade. There are thriving music industries, wonderful in music industries all around the world, but they're based on different ideas, different concepts. And so what's sort of one of the best things about the Shuttleworth Foundation is being able to see music that is happening through the eyes of someone who lives in the Middle East or through the eyes of someone who lives in Africa or through the eyes of someone who lives in South America and actually realize that th- these are models that, that don't have to be stuck where they are stuck right now. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing for us, too, is, is starting to be able to see things on a more global level. And I think that's been a very powerful thing for sure. It sounds like they do a lot more than just write the checks. Every fellow, there's only about a dozen fellows at any given point in time. We we all have a, we have an all hands talk every week. Um, we have uh, a required on site meeting that we do twice a year. Uh, it's a week long meeting where we all work together on each other's problems, and so it it becomes sort of a suddenly I know an awful lot about academic issues and publishing, South African challenges for education in small villages and, you know, all this stuff. And it's just like crammed into your brain. And then suddenly you find a different perspective. Uh, if it's building crazy open uh, wireless telecom net or telco networks in, in Mexico, that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to see all these different projects from different perspectives. Uh, it's pretty neat. Another way you guys raised money was through a Kickstarter campaign. And you raised money for something that you called Cash Music Summits. Yep. And that's actually how you and I met at a Cash Music mm-hmm. Summit in Chicago in 2014. What did you learn through the process of planning Cash Music Summits? Well, I learned it's kind of crazy to host summits. You know, they were amazing experiences, uh, I have to say. And we have one coming up still in 2015. Atlanta. And we'll probably do them at some point, some more, but we probably will bring them closer to home this time. Uh, The Kickstarter thing was interesting because we saw all these different places that I thought have great things going on. So uh, we did one in Chicago and I 
dearly love Chicago. It's got one of the most amazing civic technology, I guess, hive minds in existence. You know, you have so many amazing people uh, from, you know, Dan Sinker and Open News, John Bracken over the Knight Foundation, um, you know, seeing uh, Harper Reed and what he did with uh, the Obama campaign and, and just up and down. People at Pitchfork, you know, you're talking about great brains. You know, Matt Denowitz over there is building stuff, lots of open components. And, and uh, it's a pretty, pretty fascinating city, really, when it comes down to it for both technology and for music. And so we did, we did one in Chicago, and that was fantastic. We saw a ton of people come out. It was really a lot of engagement, a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting ideas, et cetera. And uh, did one in New York that was also pretty great. And, you know, there we saw a completely different crowd. You know, we... Uh, you know, we kind of met uh, Ashok Kondabalouf the first time. Uh, Dapwell uh, from from Dap Race, Das Racist is uh, stage name. We've actually been working with him a little bit more. He helped us put on a summit in London uh, as part of uh, Mozfest, and uh, we are going to be working with him again for the Atlanta summit. You know, Anil Dash spoke there. It's just that you know, New York is New York, and uh, did one up in Seattle, and obviously again did one at the uh, at the at Mozfest in London. And what's really fantastic is is that it's terrifying, basically. You know, you're, you're you're not talking to a local crowd. You're not talking to people that actually know you. You you have to interface with locals, with whatever. And it was just, it was fantastic. I mean, we've done summits in other places. We did one in LA. What we tried to find for those ones, for the Kickstarter ones, we just tried to find where are where are cities that are doing amazing things that don't necessarily get the same recognition as Los Angeles, as New York even, but you know where are those Chicago's, the Atlanta's, the Seattle's? Frankly, you know, like I want to find those places and and see what people are doing, see what the scene is like there, and, uh, and frankly, just get ideas from people. It's it's incredibly rewarding, not because we're not going there to try and pitch the idea of cash music per se. We're going there to try and say what's working around the arts, what creative ideas are out there. You always find some new angle that that's just like a great takeaway that you'd never thought you'd find. So it's important to collaborate in person as much as it is over over a GitHub or whatever. So that experience for me was actually quite eye opening because I'd been to conferences that were about technology. I've been to a lot of music conferences. I actually have a few different degrees in music. Nice. And I've been to hackathons. And it seemed like with the Cash Music Summit, you guys really took a lot of the interesting things mm -hmm. from people giving presentations, from people hacking, to people talking about music, to people talking about software, and you put them all together in one summit. It was good. You know, I, I, that's the thing is that, and it's like, you know, every every city, it's different. Seattle was, uh, we had, we had okay attendance at the, uh, at the sort of what turned out to be sort of a, a panel event discussion, but the, uh, that hackathon day just was great. You know, we had a bunch of people up at the Rhapsody space and, and it was just like full of great people. And I mean, par partially me getting my <laughs> kicked about where's the documentation for this and me shying away going, yeah, okay, I'll write better docs. It's fine. I'll do it. But, uh, you know, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And I kind of think there's this thing where you see, you know, a music tech conference and you'll find there are four token musicians and a whole load of people with their music startups or you find you know a musician's working group or, or a bunch of musicians having a meeting and there's nobody representing hey i have these ideas around tech and so you know the thing that that maggie and i just sat down and we just well, where is the thing where where you just get a super nerd next to somebody that's working their ass off to make music as, as a career and, and just put them in the same room you're talking about two people who are driven entrepreneurial different view on the world the works you know and uh it just doesn't exist, really. You know, I mean, it, it, people try, 
but it doesn't quite get where it needs to go. And, and I think that's something that uh, we talk about a lot, you know, is that idea of saying if it's, you know, punk rock that was dear to me, if it's hip hop, if it's, you know, any of those sort of movements around music where it was really truly about taking something that's there already and transforming it and building it into more, that's, that's what programmers are doing. And let's, let's embrace that and put, put everybody in the same room and just say, look, you're the same. Let's just figure out how to get the language. It will be great. So. It did remind me a little bit of some conferences called Hacks and Hackers that were for journalists and for developers. The hacks being the journalists and the hackers being the developers. I'll actually confess that was was part of the inspiration for it. I I went to a MozFest four or five years ago where they did a a Hacks and Hackers thing, and uh, I thought it was great. It was just such a an eye-opening thing of like, you guys are also same kinds of people, you know, you want to fix problems, solve riddles, the works, and here you go. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, I really like the idea of, of, I'm a big fan of brackish waters, put it that way. You know, I like, let's just all be uncomfortable together and see what we can do. And it's before long, you can do some pretty great things. In 2009, you applied to have Cash Music classified as a charity, and in 2013, the IRS denied your request. That decision caught a lot of people's attention, and you were featured in the New York Times, Computer World, the UK, and elsewhere. But before we get to the controversy surrounding that decision, I just wanted to ask you, why do you believe that Cash Music should qualify for tax-exempt status? And in what capacity does cash music exist for the public good? So, you know, the first thing I'll say is you should never pretend that you're a lawyer when you fill out things like that. It doesn't actually work to your favor. That's, that's basically the, uh, the application for the IRS thing was done over my kitchen table uh, with pretty much my, my savings account being drained to do the $800 application fee or whatever. And then that was that was that. So, you know, I will say, I think now that we have actual lawyers working for us pro bono, we have a much better chance. So the, the thing that we went under when we applied, so to, to, to muddy the water even further, we are we are a fully non-profity non-profit. That, that part, the charity side versus the non-profit side are two different things. So we are a fully, you know, we are a non-profit in the state of Oregon. Um, that is the sort of the corporate structure of the whole thing. Uh, we basically are in, I guess you'd probably say worst of both worlds territory where we are – a full nonprofit uh, can't take any kind of investment, uh, must behave by all nonprofit rules, regulations, et cetera. Also can't take – but there's no, you know, there's no ownership, none of the perks that come with starting a smaller company. So it's, it's a little bit of a limbo space right now. We got rejected, talked to our lawyers, and essentially what they said was, look, let the rejection stand and come back and reapply. So our original arguments were under the idea that we were an educational organization in a lot of ways. I probably made an ineloquent uh, argument that education should be hands-on. The idea of open source uh, around a specific thing, especially open source being applied to best case, best practices in an industry, is a a type of education. It is empowering people through free and open public good, and it is working to solve problems that the for-profit industry cannot solve. And I I still stand by that pretty pretty firmly. So – Really, we did that, and we also did it under um, public benefit science, creating creating code, creating uh, stuff that would be uh, free to the public. The argument used against us by the IRS, so the reason we got so much coverage was we got rejected by Lois Lerner, who was actually the person that the Tea Party was skewering for 
not, you know, she, she was the one that was sort of, everyone was saying that, uh, you know, the IRS was acting improperly when it came to rejecting, uh, corp, uh, specifically conservative, um, political bodies and Tea Party stuff. What it actually was is there's sort of an IRS dragnet effectively. So literally if you use the word open source in your application, you will get denied or you'll get flagged at the very least for extra review. So there, there's a pro tip right there to any nerds wanting to look at, into doing a, uh, a nonprofit. You don't, don't use the words. <laughs> you know, so we, we made a, a strong case around the open source license saying that was public benefit, public benefit science. And, um, you know, what we've really done is we've just, uh, we've refocused an awful lot more on education. I mean, I'm sitting in, uh, our new space, which we've got for the first time uh, ever in office. And uh, believe it or not, it's in a converted high school. And uh, we're going to be doing an awful lot more summits and meetups and uh, want to be doing more in, along the lines of publishing, actually publishing best case, uh, best practices, uh, case studies, publishing ideas, editorials, opinion pieces about essentially how to make a sustainable living as a musician, but also how to as a fan, appreciate the space that is sort of music space. It's a tricky question and people ask it a lot. So, you know, opening eyes on both sides is sort of the, the goal. So I think, uh, you know, we're going to be in a position by June or July is my guess to start our reapplication in earnest and go back in for uh, 501c3 status, uh, primarily as an educational organization uh, that happens to be, you know, tossing off this giant open source platform as a, byproduct as a sort of a side benefit of running an educational institution, which is, uh, I guess, technically true since we have been working with artists the entire time. And, and it is not, you know, the, the mission isn't to, um, to build software. The mission is to find sustainability for, for musicians. It sometimes is very humbling to think I wrote a quarter million lines of code that we're saying is a byproduct of what we do. <laughs> um, but you know, <laughs> Hey, that's my, that's my little issue to get over, not, not the organization. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I still would hold firm to the idea that what we're doing is a public benefit education service. It is a public benefit in general. I think, I think open source largely should qualify. Our rejection was based on the idea that because our software is free, we're actually giving a competitive advantage to anyone who uses it instead of paid software. So therefore, any software given away for free should not qualify by default for uh, nonprofit status uh, because it provides an unfair competitive advantage. So that was why we got rejected. I put the full text up on our uh, on our blog, and it caused a lot of uproarious laughter between places like Mozilla and the NFF, obviously. It was a... A really funny, funny thing if you hadn't been part of three and a half years of application process. I read the rejection letter from the IRS, and I have to say I was somewhat baffled by their reasoning. A charity is something that exists for the public good. Yeah. And based on everything you've said today, it sounds to me like cash music exists for the public good. Yeah. And I have to say that I thought that was pretty courageous of you to write the blog post while you were waiting... And again, after Cash Music got rejected, I think a lot of people appreciated your willingness to share what was going on with Cash Music. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing is you, you want to talk about public good. The, you know, one of the things that's very important, I think uh, this is sort of a general piece. I, you know, we talk a lot about um, social entrepreneurship in this world now. And uh, I'm a big fan, to put it that way. But uh, what happens in most uh, social entrepreneurship is it's basically become distilled as a for-profit business that gives a chunk of its of its earnings to charity. 
to be clear, I, I like that model. I think that's great. But uh, the idea of social entrepreneurship started out more as a for-profit institution that is doing some public benefit or a nonprofit that can be agile and nimble, much like a for-profit. So it's basically a blurring of those two waters from both sides. And so we've dropped and lost sort of the nonprofit that can go and be nimble and be aggressive. Well, I just don't see any reason to drop that argument. So I'm not about to. So the IRS is going to have to deal with me again, I guess, is really what it comes down to. So I, I think it's an important thing that we do. I think it's an important aspect of entrepreneurship. You know, I, I think that the idea of, of nonprofits in our world is actually very important. I think nonprofits can serve a, a vital place inside of innovation, actually. I think if we, if we only have closed stack, what good is the internet? I mean, it was built on open software and open protocols, and we're slowly closing it down and saying we'll stop innovating on the open spectrum and we'll only do the really fancy stuff behind closed doors. And that is an issue. I, I like for-profit companies and I like closed I have no no issue with closed innovation I just have issue with exclusively closed innovation so that's where weirdos like me come in I guess there's nothing wrong with a for-profit company making open source software nope so to play devil's advocate a little bit wouldn't it be easier just to make cash music a for-profit company oh it'd be all kinds of easier you kidding me um <laughs> yeah it'd be easier but I didn't really do this to be easy you know you don't you don't say let's change the music industry and start trying to make people think about culture instead of hits uh for for ease um the the problem with it and just for the record we've been offered and uh we've been offered venture capital money just to walk away from nonprofit status and, and I, I refuse we've also been offered money to do it as a hybrid where you have a for-profit and a nonprofit that work together under one roof essentially and that, that also well, I think is a great and admirable structure. It's not for us. The reason being what's really powerful about open source plus a nonprofit. And this is, you know, it's, it's the thing that's asked me every time. Oh, well, first there's, are you f crazy? That's the first question that's asked. And then the second question is, okay, but why? And, and the, but why is a uh, nonprofit as an entity cannot be bought. You can technically sell our assets. We could technically sell our assets, our software. That's not an issue, but the organization itself cannot be bought. And, and that especially around music, is, is vital. You're talking about an industry that where, where it could be very, very easy for someone to come along and make me an offer that I can't refuse. And I will also point out that I started this long enough ago that I had a one-year-old daughter, and that was the size of my family. It was my, my wife, my daughter, a couple of dogs, and me. Now I have two kids, and so I think in different ways. I worry about things like, oh, God, I have to you know, get your teeth fixed or clean you and that kind of crap and you start thinking differently and so making a mission-driven nonprofit using tools online using using an online sort of world whereas uh, going with a for-profit technically my job is to return dividends and it's great that I'm doing the thing for those artists and finding the sustainability but if I could you know quadruple revenue one year by making a deal that slightly puts a dent into those plans into that sort of sustainability well that's that's something that you would have to consider and potentially even have to do legally so this structure means no one's coming along and making an offer we can't refuse no one's going to buy us and close up shop we might i mean heaven forbid i don't want to fail but we could fail but we could fail and everything would remain in the open source in the public good so what we're building right now is lasting it's a permanent thing everything we've built will continue to be around as long as any artist wants to use it or needs it. And, and you can't say the same for the tools that 
MySpace built, you can't say that the same for the tools that any startup has ever built because invariably they go away. They get bought, acquired, sold, changed, whatever. And we are doing something different. And that's, uh, that's the goal is to do something different. Well, you certainly have my support. And honestly, you're making a great case for nonprofits and free software. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, you definitely see other industries where, where it's a different story. Like Canonical is, is a for-profit company. And they're a fairly big for-profit company making Ubuntu and, and having uh, their their operating system out in the world. And, and, and that's awesome. It's great to see people making money and making business around open source. I think that's fantastic. You know, music industry is a weird nut, you know, on top of it not just being company plus consumer. You're also talking about now you're talking about, well, I'm going to build this service, but it's going to be there for artists to use. I'm really building a business to business type of thing. It's for artists, but they're going to bring it out to thousands and thousands of people at a time, you know? So it's, it's, you know, we, we have, you know, 5,000 people using the hosted version or whatever, uh, not a huge number. I don't think we'll ever have a huge number there. If we got to a hundred thousand, then Jesus, that's, I mean, how many musicians are out there trying to run their careers? It's not a ton of people, but each one of those people reaches between five and, you know, 500,000 people in their, in their audience, you know, and, that, and that's the thing that, makes it so tricky and that's one of the reasons musicians have such a hard time is that you're talking about software that not only i mean effectively the music industry uh, music tech stuff when you're doing promotion around music you're you're basically asking people to do a ddos attack on your server you're saying hey i'm going to release this thing at this exact minute and there's 500,000 people 200,000 however many people all waiting for it so they all hit your server so you actually have to build really strong really robust stuff but you don't know when it's going to hit. You don't know when that thing's going to happen, when it's going to be on a TV show or, or do whatever. So it's got to be there. So it's a, it's a, it's a different world. It's, it's a really weird, uh, space, but it's, uh, it's interesting to say the least. So yeah, we, we felt it needed to be handled a little differently and, and maybe someone else comes along after us and turns a for-profit company out of sort of the same ideas or even literally on our own code. And that's, that's an okay thing. That just means we built something that actually is sustainable itself. So that, that's cool. Another organization that comes to mind is the Mozilla Foundation because they are both for-profit and non-profit right. and also a sponsor of Cash Music. Yep. Now, Mozilla makes the Firefox web browser, and last year Mozilla made the choice to support digital rights management, DRM, in its Firefox browser. Mm-hmm. That was a rather controversial decision, and I was curious, did that have any effect on Cash Music? It didn't really affect us all that much, to be honest. I mean, it's not it's not exactly an area that we have to really worry about or deal with too much. I think I think the thing there that was funny is that it's it's an unfortunate box they're put in where it's you know you're you're, you're saying they made a choice to to accept DRM and and they did, but the real choice there is you're talking about one of the most successful, if not the most successful, open source project in the world. You're uh, seeing numbers change. The the sort of the demographics are changing a bit there and. Uh, Honestly, the, the real the real guts of it is, at least in the U.S. market, which is very important for them to, to earn revenue, you're seeing them forced into a situation where do you support Netflix, yes or no? And Netflix is such a big deal for so many people that it would just be an instant drop from their browser. And so, you know, that that was really, as far as I understand, the, the driving factor was people really love them some TV. <laughs> and how do we build a browser 
and tell people that it doesn't support their TV. So that had relatively little impact on you and the musicians you were working with. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that you can use that stuff to push DRM capable something something. It's not something we're doing. We, uh, you know, all of our stuff first off is is you know format neutral. So like you can if you want to sell you know a zip file full of MP3s, that's a that's go for it. You know, you can upload it, sell it. You know, if you wanted to sell. 4,000 Word docs that you've zipped up like a crazy person. Well, you know, you can do that too. That's fine. We support, uh, through our streaming stuff, our player, you know, supports MP3 and, and all the other, uh, everything from fully open through an OGG type thing to a, to an MP3, whatever. We try and, try and cover as much as we can. But, but really, yeah, the DRM stuff doesn't really hit us all that much. We're not, you know, we're, we're very different from like a Spotify or someone else that's trying to stop the, the, you know, audio rip stuff. I think also we are just flat out more realistic. Everyone knows that you literally need a $1.49 cable from wherever replaces Radio Shack. And guess what? You got that audio back. It's not going to degrade in quality. So I'm not too worried about it. at a web development firm called Lullabot, and we build lots of different websites, mm-hmm. some of them for big music organizations. But lots of the developers at Lullabot, like me, like to contribute back to oh, yeah. open source projects. Is there a way that a web firm like ours or individuals can support cache music, either through mm-hmm. code contributions, documentation, or something else? Yeah, Absolutely. I took uh, took a holiday break like you're supposed to, and instead of really taking a break, I, I just put my head down on documentation. Uh, one of the things we've talked about for this year is actually doing uh, training programs for uh, web development firms, where you know, literally, like I will fly there, we will go over things together, we'll work on things, we'll customize things, and you will understand how our stuff works. And the idea behind that was doing doing some basic training for firms that are doing interesting stuff that are working at a different level than us. Or, frankly, you know, we don't want to be a web development shop anyway. We build this core tool. So we want to see it in use more. And so the idea being, let's train people to use more of it. And, uh, and exactly that, same thing. Big shops, you're going to want to customize stuff. When you customize stuff, it comes back to the, to the core and everyone's, everyone's happy. I think... When I have to explain open source to people who are outside that world, uh, especially in the music world, but the thing I always kind of think about is go all the way back to when Radiohead released In Rainbows. Uh, that was their Pay What You Want album. Yeah, I got a ton of press because no one had done it before. It was a really big deal, and you know, half the world said it was a re- you know it was a huge success. The other half said it was a huge failure, and each one had solid numbers and solid arguments to back their stuff up. And uh, the truth of the matter is no one knows how exactly big a deal it was. You know, this little thing between saying, well, there were 10 million downloads and we got whatever, $10 million was make it really easy. So, you know, we sold it at a dollar a copy and we lost a, a lot of money and that wasn't very good. Or you could say, well, you didn't really lose the money because the digital hosting doesn't cost that much and that's great. Or you could say, wait a minute, there's 10 million downloads. Well, how many of those were unique? How many of those visitors were actually unique visitors? And how many people sampled it once and came and gave you 10 bucks for it next after trying it a couple of times? You know, And, uh, and that stuff, those questions were unanswered. And so what we've always said was when 
people come out with a new model and you try something new, you experiment, there's always going to be that piece of, oh, crap, I wish we had measured this or I wish we had done that but done it just a little bit differently. And, uh, and I mean this is going to be where it gets familiar is, is you know, you start making those arguments and then you say, well, if I had the source code, I could just change it and someone else could come along and try it that way. And what's interesting there is had Radiohead released that and had that been on open code, it's exactly what you could have done. You could have had the same kind of test later on to make a more scientific approach to did that work or did that not work? Or you could have tweaked things about it. And, uh, you know, would Radiohead have gotten any less of the sort of innovator credit there? Absolutely not. You know, they would have gotten that exact same, wow, that was really fantastic what they did, except it would be an easier path for other people to duplicate that to see if there is a model for that beyond one record, beyond one experiment. And I think, you know, places like Bandcamp have proven that, yeah, there's definitely a market for it. So, yeah, I think I think the idea there is, is you know, open source makes a, makes those innovations happen faster and they make them more interesting. And especially around that idea of a bigger development firm coming out, it's it's not only do you get the credit, you get the little whatever Webby award or whatever thing you get. And then, uh, you know, what you've done is you've also contributed something that can build a market faster than ever before. And that to me is a really exciting thing. So. So it sounds like the primary audience for cash music is the indie rock musician who needs a website mm-hmm. or the classical musician or independent music label that needs a website. Yeah. However, you use the word artist in a lot of places. So I was curious if cash music is also intended for someone like, say, my wife, who makes some fantastic paper art and she sells it online. Is cash music for other kinds of artists as well? We have mapped it out to the best of our ability to work with musicians. I say artist in general because artist is a little bit easier to say band and or musician. In the end, we care about the sustainability of artists. I think that labels are a big part of that. So, you know, uh, obviously we work with labels and want them to use it as well. And, you know, gone from everywhere, from the smallest label up to majors even a couple of times. And uh, we've seen it at all of them. But no, I think there's a, there's sort of the unofficially, yeah, I, I'd love to see it. I think there's a different model that's out there that should be there for creatives in general. I think it goes from writers to artists to literally anybody building things, making things online. I think it, it it's just like Creative Commons. You know, you can see it aimed at specific areas, but those specific areas aren't the only people to benefit. They're just the ones that you're targeting. And so, you know, you see stand-up uh, comedians doing a lot of stuff like this, Louis C.K., et cetera. Um, you see films being released this way uh, in sort of a direct-to-their-audience kind of kind of uh, thing. And, and I think that all of those areas have huge potential with this stuff. And we've built the platform to be neutral enough that it wouldn't be hard to adapt. It's just sort of shaped for music because that's the world I know. It's where I've been forever. You know, and that's where, you know, Maggie, Maggie is essentially – she was the first employee at Kill Rock Stars, and they were one of those first labels that really started the indie label movement. You know, like that's that's what she comes from. That's what we know. And so, yeah, we 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 think we can make like personally that we can make the most impact inside of music. So we've turned we sort of like tried hard tried hard to stay focused on that. But I I love every example I can get that is somebody in a different space using those tools, using those ideas, using the concepts to, to actually succeed uh, elsewhere. So, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's got potential to be a real change in, in our, our world, in that sort of Internet industry. I think going from, you know, right now most startups kind of do their thing. They have a niche that they, they tackle. And 
we've done the dumbest thing possible. It's not a minimum viable product. It's like a maximum viable product before we got off the ground. And I can see why that's tricky. I can see why you don't do that again. But I'm seven years in and we're there. So there you are. You know, I think I think it's funny. You have the Stripes and PayPal's out there. You have S3 and CenturyLink and Rackspace and all these places offering cloud compute, cloud storage, cloud stuff. And uh, the idea that you have to go through a startup, a middleman every single time just to say, I'm going to sell a digital file seems stupid in 2015. I think, you know, if this is if we're talking about 20 solid years of what we think of as the modern Internet, we shouldn't be at the point where you're saying, look, I want to accept a payment to give a file to somebody and I'm going to need to go through three different service levels. You know, they're going to take the payment. They're going to take the file hosting and take care of that stuff. And I'm going to just push a button here and there. It's it. We should we should have a much better option. And don't get me wrong. Like I think there's something wonderful about a band camp, about a place like that where you can say this is full service. I don't care. This is this is where I'm going to do. And this is this makes sense for me and it's worth it for me. But you know that thing where now I've sold whatever three, four, five thousand records at ten dollars a piece, and and I'm seeing three, four, five thousand dollars come out of my pocket. Maybe maybe that wasn't the best use of your of your time. If there can be something else that plugs that same S3 and that same PayPal flow together, so plenty of room for for everybody from the startup scene all the way through building it yourself. But the building it yourself thing should be a lot easier. That makes sense. I can see why you would want to focus on musicians because if you didn't. Then you would have to start making the case for why somebody should use cache music right. over another more general content management system like a WordPress or a Drupal. It also makes sense when you look at who is on your board, because in addition to having technical people on your board, you have a lot of pretty well-known musicians. All the all the fancy bosses I have? Yeah, sure. One thing I should point out is is also that you're not really making a choice to choice between uh, a Drupal or a WordPress and our stuff. It's actually kind of uh, kind of a we can use a combination. Like we've built this thing, so it is a lamp stack, but we've made it as generic lamp stack as possible. So we've seen it rolled out on WordPress sites, on Tumblr, on a couple a couple times in Drupal. Um, all the stuff is is sort of meant to play nice with whatever CMS you build your stuff in. So that was part of our our, our argument too, is that these tools shouldn't be dependent on. Oh, but I, I'm in Drupal and I need this one WordPress plugin and now I'm boned for my, my thing. That's, that's a very intentional call on our part to the point where there is actually, there's a really janky, but there is technically a WordPress plugin. Um, somebody started work on a Drupal module. You know, these are, these are ideas that we have that this stuff should, our core library should work across CMS seamlessly. But yeah, so, uh, let's see, board. You know, musicians, Kristen Hirsch, obviously, uh, who was there at the very beginning. She is still on the board. Uh, Zoe Keating, who is a well-known cellist uh, in San Francisco, she's there. Toby Vale, who was uh, in Bikini Kill, she's on the board. And uh, Jonathan Colton, who is, you know, everybody's favorite computery, awesome guitar guy, who is just turning into one of my favorite musicians to, to see in general. You know, all, all of those guys are there. From from that perspective, we have people like Andy Weissman, uh, Anil Dash is on the board. Um, people like Pascal Finette, who was uh, a director over at Mozilla. So we have that sort of tech and entrepreneurship viewpoint, the VCs, etc. And we also have people, um, you know, Eric Stoyer, who was the creative director, of Creative Commons forever, and is now still an advisor with those guys. Uh, writes for uh, Wired, used to write for Good, all, all kinds of editorial experience. Uh, Danielle Smith, who uh, is doing a thing called Hardcover Now, she 
she's an editor at oh crap i'm gonna i'm gonna get it wrong so i'm not gonna go down the list but she was an editor of some some pretty pretty major places um i believe vibe and, and a few others so she, she's just done amazing stuff and we're just even just managers jake friedman emily white people that that sort of manage artists uh ben from secretly canadian uh they're one of the sort of they're the largest indie distributor in music and one of the largest indie labels out there uh oh I'm forgetting Dave Allen from Gang of Four, you know, uh, Anthony Bat. It's just it's a it's a ton of incredibly qualified people who, you know, we've gotten very, very lucky. We have people that believe in us, you know, and, and so like we get our board members by talking to people and then having them say, I, I want to do whatever I can do to help. And we say, yeah, that's that's great. You know, one of our newest additions to the board is uh, Amici Azugwe, who's uh, the manager for uh, run the jewels and you know we work together we we're side by side and he just loved what we were doing and we kind of loved him and what you know he brought as, as a perspective as both a manager and also a, a person who worked in tech for years and sure enough you know before we knew it like nine ten months goes by and we say hey should we should we do something here and yeah so we're we're uh, it's, it's an interesting experience you know it's uh it's pretty great lot of people to report to it sounds like you've encountered quite a few challenges you wear a lot of different hats was it worth all the effort ah that's a loaded question (laughs) it sure is you know before we sort of hit our groove and figured out a little bit about how you raise funds and you know we're still not great at it there was a time when you know i was filling out food stamp applications and thinking maybe i try to find a real job (laughs) um but yeah, it's been worth it. It's been great. It's a weird, it's a weird job in that you know music is kind of an all-or-nothing thing, and you feel like there are days when you look up and you think we're not there yet, and so that it, it's nothing. It's not all of it, and it's, you know it, it feels hard. It's not an easy job, and it's not an easy, you know, it's not even easy to convince people that musicians belong building things on the web or that uh, music is uh, something that should matter at a cultural level or or something we should care about because. Yeah, I mean, I know the Grammys are there, and, and uh, you know the RAA is there, and you have people who are pretty unsympathetic, and uh, and I get it. You know, I think at the end of the day, uh, I definitely know that what we're doing is, is trying to make sure that there's a space for the arts in whatever future we're building. And I definitely, you know, the more you look at the sort of centralization of power on the internet, um, you know, the more you worry a little bit that 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 musicians and artists in general uh, won't have have that as a space, really. You know, it'll always be, well, what corporate service do you use and where is your stuff stuck? And man, it's a shame you don't you don't have that 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 exclusive relationship with so and so like I do because your exclusive relationship is no good. And that is not the world that I, I want to live in. That's not what I'm hoping the internet brings to us. I, I really I really and truly believe that we are all richer if if we can have the arts guiding us and, and sort of giving a more shared perspective. The way that you get the arts and, and culture to matter on the internet in this world, embrace the open web and you tell people and you teach people about it and you do the hard thing of trying to sell geek stuff to uh, people that are working in pop culture. And, and I think in the end, it, it becomes its own reward. I have a lot more gray hair. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. It is quite refreshing talking to someone else who cares about free software for musicians. Yeah, you get like two more on the phone. We got them all. <laughs> I think that's great, man. I just, you know, you see, you see more of it. 
you know, yesterday, Katie Goodman from, from Vivian Girls started talking about how she's been learning to code. She kept a blog of it, and, and she's talking about it. This isn't something that's unreachable, impossible, or bad. This is something we can do, and you know, this is a, a thing we can all build together. That, that ideal of open source to me is just such a cool, like, I mean, it doesn't get any more punk than that. I, I, you know, I can't see another way to do it. I just I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jesse. I have just one more question for you. What's next for Cash Music? Well, uh, we've got a release coming out uh, a few weeks from now that's going to be uh, – it's aimed at uh, first-time users of the platform. So it's hopefully to make, make things a whole lot easier, help guide people through the idea of, of setting everything up. Immediately after that, we're going to be uh, doing our Atlanta Summit that we're working on. I think that that's uh, late March, early April. Just after that, you'll start to see uh, – that's where sort of that, that sort of educational content, that, that really almost like journalistic content, the idea that we start publishing – artist stories on our own, you know, under our own umbrella will will start sort of early summer. And that's really when we are maybe shakily, but very shakily standing on our own legs as this is what we meant to build is, is an organization that can tell stories, that can empower them, that can uh, let people go out and, and do this stuff. So, uh, you know, that's that's two, 2015 in a nutshell. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'm excited for you guys. And thanks once again for coming on the show, Jesse. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's really appreciated, and you know, it's always great when someone wants to help tell the story. So definitely, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you join me again next month. My guest will be Ruth Seeley, and we'll be talking about Red Hat, the Fedora Project, OpenSource.com, and her new book, Raspberry Pi Hacks. We'll explore ways that people can get involved with free and open source software that don't involve writing any code. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. You can learn more about this show and subscribe at lullabot.com slash hacking culture. Please follow at Hacking Culture and at Matthew Tift on Twitter or mtift on Microcast. You can also contact Matthew via email at hackingculture at lullabot.com. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. Hacking Culture is produced at Lullabot. The theme music is from the Open Goldberg Variations. Thank you for listening. There's a swear jar in my house now, and I just like preload that thing with five bucks every week.